Former U.S. National Rugby Team Captain. Team Captain. Head Coach and General Manager. General Manager. Now, the co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now. Now. Full Contact CEO with Alex Magleby. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining Full Contact CEO today. I'm your host, Alex Magleby. I'm also co-founder and CEO of the High Flying New England Free Jacks and Heritage Sports Ventures. Joining today is Jim Brown, who is currently the executive chair of the USA Rugby World Cup bid for the 2031 and 2033 World Cups. Jim helped the U.S. secure the co-hosting of the 2026 FIFA World Cup, has worked multiple Olympic Games, not to mention he was executive director for competitions for the 2006 Soccer World Cup in Germany and 2010 World Cup in South Africa, two of the most memorable Soccer World Cups to date. Uh, we're days, if not hours, away from learning if the U.S. will win the World Cup bid. So who better to talk to than the most second, <laughs> the second most famous Jim Brown yeah, in sports entertainment? <laughs> you're the second person to say that. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. Come on. They're totally disagrees. Yeah. I see what you did there. <laughs> okay. That's good. And you're affecting so many people, which is awesome. Before we get into it, is I think US, so. are we going to get uh, the you know, I think we, as we say that, I think um, obviously need to be a little cautious about it all, but certainly um, much more likely to, to get it than not, if it'll get them. There's two of them. I get them uh, more, more likely than not at this stage is the belief. So good. I can't wait to dig into that. We're going to start up with a warm-up game. I'm just going to say a word, and you say okay. the first thing that comes to mind. Um, Bolivia. Good place to be born. <laughs> the headbutt. Oh, yeah. yeah. 2006. That one that was uh, closer to it, and most uh, <laughs> people will realize. Yes. Right there. Vuva Zella. That- what do you think? Oh, Vuva Zella. The uh, not, not the highlight of my career, although there's a story behind that, but uh, I don't know if we have time to tell it. <laughs> okay, well, I'll leave that one up to you. I'd, be, I'd love to hear it. We had a couple of fans in our first home match bring those into the stadium, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Making noise, fans making noise. Exactly. And the complaints we got from all our other supporters about it was, was I, I just never had thought so uh, those were quickly not yeah I could have helped people to bring in yeah. anymore <laughs> yeah I should have asked first so Jim just a bit about your background you said you were born in Bolivia how did you get there to uh my my parents uh, met in Bolivia my mother's a Stanford grad and my my father's a an East Coast guy and they met in the Peace Corps in uh, in Bolivia um, and, uh, you know, I was born, born there and, you know, my, my, their, their, their shared mission was to, to be and, and be overseas and, and work overseas and live overseas. My mother's a immigrant uh, to the U S and my father's not, not far from that second generation. I think, I think they really liked the idea of going back overseas and that's where I was raised in a variety of countries and. Went to Hamilton, um, partially because it, it was a good school, Division Three, which is the level of athlete I, I was or am. Maybe not anymore, but I was. But um, uh, my father worked for Carrier Air Conditioning as uh, overseas, and 
I'd never lived where it was cold and I wanted to go where it was cold. So there I picked a snowy cold place uh, by, by October. I think I'd had enough of the cold though, but, uh, but that it definitely scratched that itch for sure. Where did you fall? Well, I, I, soccer, uh, football. Like I said, overseas, and that was really the common denominator everywhere I lived, whether it was Singapore as a little kid, um, or Monterey, Mexico, where I spent a, most of my, I think was six years of my childhood, then Malaysia, then Hong Kong. And, and soccer was, you know, obviously a conduit, uh, through all of that. I did play American football where the oil guys in Southeast Asia would fly in the equipment from Texas and, and we played the football there too. So I played everything there was to play. We had one, one hour of English TV a, a day. Uh, so we had to stay busy. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. That. Do you still use your Spanish? When I was at FIFA, I became a South American in order to, uh, to align to a, um, a, a very powerful people at FIFA and they, they took me under their wing. So I was Bolivian and my name was Jim, not Jim. That's brilliant. How did you get from Hamilton then to starting to be involved uh -huh. in running events, yeah. sporting events in particular? Uh, you know, that's a, a good question. I, I graduated from Hamilton and, and I guess similar to my parents, my, my urge was to go back overseas and teach kids, uh, who were like me. So they, they were, they were expats. Uh, I ended up, um, writing to a former, uh, assistant principal of mine when I lived in KL to say, how, how should I go about doing this? And. He wrote back saying, well, that's easy. I'll offer you a job. And, and the job was in, in Cyprus in Nicosia, Cyprus, where I, I played semi-pro soccer or whatever was available and, and, you know, taught in a, in a boarding school full of, uh, Americans and expats and not, not just Americans, obviously a lot of, a lot of kids at the time were flowing out of the middle East. So they were obviously American, but. A lot of Swedes, a lot of Canadians because of the UN activity. So it was really, it was a really great experience. And then on my way home from uh, Cyprus, which was 1990, after two years in Cyprus, I went through Italy and watched the 90 World Cup and some big games there and, and figured out maybe I'll go. And, and the U.S. had already won the rights to 94. So I said, I'll go back, coach soccer and, and maybe work for a team, which I did both of those. And, and then you know, got, uh, out of the blue, the, the guy who was running the 94 world cup in, in Stanford area offered me a job. And, uh, I've been on this, uh, treadmill ever since 90 world cup. That was the last time West Germany played yep. as West Germany. Exactly. Was that, was that, yeah, that? it hadn't, yeah, hadn't, well, it had hadn't fallen. Uh, that's a good point. No, I, I think they did. Yeah, 89, yeah, 89, and then I think yeah. 90 is when yeah. kind of everyone no, I think was they, yeah, they, codified. They played as Germany for the first time. They didn't play very well. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they won. Yeah, so we, we went to the final. Um, you know, Germany. That was West, West, Virginia, Argentina, uh, West Germany Argentina. versus Maradona's Argentina. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. That was, that was four years after the exactly. of course. So they but almost did it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you yeah. went, you were like, okay, this is awesome. I love this event. I'm going to try to get yep. involved in this. And you moved back to the States and how'd you get then involved? Yeah, I, 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 I went, got home. Well, my, my family, I, we, I refer to Northern California as my home cause I, that's when I spent a lot of summers with my grandparents there. And, uh, you know, obviously the Stanford area, broader area was, uh, was a nice place to to be. 
uh, I, I ended up coaching soccer um, in the fall of, of 90 after getting back. And then I got a job in the winter to coach Palo Alto High School, um, which at the time was, you know, obviously a pretty visible soccer, soccer program in, in the area and right across the street, literally across the street from Stanford. So um, through, through that, I ended up getting a, a job with the team called the San Francisco Bay Blackhawks, which at the time had a lot of American national team guys on it. So, so I, I, you know, practiced with them a bit, but mainly ran the operations and, and put on a few big games. Uh, and at the time felt like big games and the, the guy who was in charge of the Bay area venue, uh, I worked with and got to know and he then offered me a job in 1993. So, and, uh, you know, great. It was awesome. A lot of pressure. Um, but it was terrific. And, and from there I went to Atlanta and I went to help with major league soccer opening, uh, and then Sydney, Salt Lake city. And that's how I fell in love with your, your state, Utah. One of the, one of the best and park city is home. Now that 94 world cup, that was, so you were, you were as a 26 year old responsible for running that whole venue, the Stanford. I, I wasn't in charge of the the whole venue team, but I ran the facility. Yeah. So the, the, the match operations, the stadium, um, Stanford stadium, uh, were well on with the Stanford staff, but I was in charge of basically the, the onsite operations. Yeah. If you're hiring an event director today, what do you look for? And something like that, somebody to run that uh, space. Well, you space. It, it, I, I, well, first of all, you have to have somebody who, uh, will work a lot <laughs> and, uh, I get that question a lot. People yes. say, how do I get into it? I want to be what you yeah. do with YouTube. The first thing yeah. is just get the job and, and work harder than everybody and the longer than everybody and the things work out. But, but I would say, you know, depending on the sport, it, it would be a different kind of job. Obviously soccer is super sophisticated now. So, um, in the States, you know, with rugby, I think it would probably be, you know, somebody who knows the game and, and will extend beyond the operation and, and help get stadiums and people to understand the differences between rugby and American football or soccer, et cetera. So I think, and I was obviously a soccer guy, so that was part of my job, but I think when it comes to rugby, I think that's a key element is to be more of a, more of an ambassador for the sport to a certain extent, uh, which I think the, the U S will need at that time. Yeah. And it seems you did a very good job, but I imagine this is hard. I mean, you, for a long time, it doesn't sound like you are, you're able to have a home cause you have to go to these big events and kind of set up shop for yeah. big portions of time period. No, it, well, it wasn't ours, paint. but, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't with my, my, I mean, having grown up overseas and moved every three or four years uh, on average anyway, um, you know, my ambition was to really settle into a community in a neighborhood and really you know, have a family and, and grow. But, um, you know, my, my, that was my desire, but my reality was I felt like I needed to do something else every three years, which really required me to travel more than I thought it would. And, uh, but I didn't live in terrible places for the most part. The only, uh, obviously Sydney's not bad. Atlanta at the time was good. It still is. I think Manhattan and New York just wasn't my thing, but it was a lot of fun. And, uh, I think, but getting, getting to Utah in the uh, end of 2000 was, was perfect. And then I left, I left in 2003 again, <laughs> thinking I'm going to be there forever and went to Zurich and, and I knew I wasn't going to be in Zurich forever, but eight years was about right for me. Right. 
Right. And just looking at the, the, the change in sports entertainment, and in this case, you know, with the World Cups and you were doing the Olympics, but in 94, that's still today yeah. the most attended World Cup? Despite successes later, why why is that yeah. the size of our stadium? It was fifty two games. Yeah, in in ninety four, um, Germany was sixty four games. Um, in fact, I think France after us was went to thirty two teams, and they were and and still they've not exceeded the number. Uh, the average stadium I think we had at ninety four was well over sixty thousand. Stanford we had ninety. Rose Bowl had over ninety. So I think that. Just the average companion, everything was sold out. So, which we hope we can do again in 31. Yeah. Yeah. And what I read about 26, right, which you led the the bidding process on that were three countries, Mexico, the U.S., Canada, have have the unified, you know, rights and are running that, that that's a potentially $15 billion revenue event, 40 teams, yeah. three countries. Is that, uh, yeah, that's... That's wild. How does that then compare to on the rugby side? What we're potentially looking at for um, from a number? You know, that that number is, I would say, uh, revenue. Yeah, I would. It's probably ten percent of what the FIFA World Cup uh, w- w- could generate, and so uh, w- over over a billion, right. uh, somewhere between a billion and one point five. So let's can we just walk through the bid process and how how it's worked. Um, to date, well, that yeah, that's a question. So we we embarked in, in August of um, 2020, right in the middle of the early stages, the end of the first summer of the pandemic, um, and and started in uh in and World Rugby was already hinting that uh, and obviously Ross Ross Young, who obviously is a, a key if not the key component of, of all of this, you know, understood that there was going to be a multi-event bid process going on. So it included the, we, we thought it was going to include the, the, the next rugby world cups after, after France, which would be a women's in 25, followed by a 27, followed by another 29, uh, women's event and then 31. So ba- based on that understanding, and we'd obviously heard, and I think there were more formal reports on, on all of that. We embarked in August and basically a six month, um, feasibility study, which world really welcomed and allowed us uh, an informal dialogue with them. So we had regular, I think in the end it became weekly calls with them, which was very helpful and, and very unique. And I think a big deal for any success we have, uh, through this process is that in the, in the FIFA way, you know, they, they don't allow that bilateral. And I was there and, and we didn't, not they, we, we didn't allow the bilateral communication just because we wanted to make sure everybody got the same information, but, uh, you know, world rugby's approach and style was, was great for us. And, and we, we picked up, uh, and really by, by January of 21, we knew we could technically do it. We knew, uh, at least from our reviews financially, it would be profitable, um, and we knew that there was a, a real interest in doing it partially because we, we had touched base with the federal government who was willing to support, uh, through some contacts we had, but also I think the, the stakeholders like cities, like, uh, stadiums, like MLR, uh, your real partners really felt and wanted to be a part of it and support. So by, by January, we were ready to go in February. 
uh, World Rugby embarked on a on a formal process called a dialogue phase, a formal dialogue phase. So by May, we were able to complete that and give them enough information that they made us an official candidate. And, uh, and that was really the formal process uh, that we, um, more formal, that's what we had to provide, you know, formal budgets and drawings of stadiums and lists, et cetera. And through that exercise by November, they decided that, uh, you know, they, they felt that between us as a candidate, Australia as a candidate, the, you know, uh, England, uh, and uh, as a candidate and, uh, you know, France was being rumored as, as being a candidate, um, for, for the women's anyway, we, they, they decided to go into a, a targeted dialogue phase. So they, they allocated the events amongst the bidders. England was the only one interested in 25. So they, they were focused there, Australia and us, um, you know, there was a, a directive given by World Rugby that Australia would be the candidate for 27, um, and we would be the candidate for 31. And, uh, and therefore we are in the case of next week, we are the only union and country who, who are eligible for the, the 31 and, and as, and then they added 33 to the process. Um, so we're 31 and 33 Australia's. 27 to 29, we had originally proposed that we would do 29 at 31. So they liked the idea of two, two in a country, but they, they, which I agree with, they liked the idea of, of, a, of men's preceding a, a women's, which, which is really the right sequence for that. So, and that's where we are. Well, I, I think that, that the way, you know, big events have, have shown is, is if you, you do your you're bigger uh, and certainly not better, but bigger, bigger event where you, you promote and you get exposure and you get the revenue that you expect, you know, that, that allows, um, for, you know, a more developing event in this case, I think in the United States, it's going to be very successful in itself. But, but the reality is, is, you know, that the success of the first one tends to provide a, a boomerang effect on, on the second, which which you know, 94 world cup was followed by 99. Um, I was about to say, yeah. Yeah. That analogy. Germany 99. 2006, Germany 2011, you know, the, the, you know, the success of equal success of both, I think shows that that, that sequence is, yeah. is, is, uh, I think the right one and at least commercially, but also from a developmental standpoint, how much do you think it'll cost? Uh, we, we proposed, and I think on record saying somewhere between $500 million and, and $600 million, depending on what you count as, as the cost, you know, were rugby's cost included in some, some cases. Um, so, you know, it's real money. Yeah. And if you just do the math based on Japan, there was just under what, 2 million. So yeah. just under 2 million attendees, right? Over yeah. what, 45 matches. So. Um, you know, very quickly, that's the revenue and the, the attendee numbers have to be pretty massive, right? In order to kind of hit those costs. It wouldn't be alone. 3.1 million tickets available. Yeah. So, but those then are going to have to sell, you know, even if they'll sell it, call it, you know, a hundred dollars a pop, yeah. right? Uh, and our, the average is higher than that. We're still... Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like so, and then we are gonna have to the fans. So if t if we were running the Rugby World Cup, men or women in the United States today, 
kind of when we had to hit those type of numbers, the question is about fandom and audience. How many need to be local versus how many need to be overseas? My understanding is Japan because it's Japan. It's further away. Less countries closer had 200 and something thousand people traveling, which is awesome. But the UK had, you know, 400,000. So for us, and then the cool thing about Japan is, you know, 50% of the people in the stands had never seen rugby before and fell in love yeah. with it. Very cool stories. But just trying to understand from our perspective, what do we need to do and grow towards in order to provide a commercially successful um, yeah. ter- tournament, two tournaments um, based on audience? What does that have to Well, work? and then that's, I think, p- part, of our, part of our bid uh, or at least submission to world rugby and certainly a lot of dialogue since is, and, and obviously it also explains why 31 ended up being attracted to us is I think there needs to be a lot of growth of the game, uh, and a lot of interest in the game, um, stimulated by the fact that the rugby world cup is coming and it's not so different to the 94 yeah. world cup soccer, uh, example. So, you know, soccer was a great participant sport, but having worked in professional soccer, it wasn't like, uh, there were 40,000 people going to our games in, uh, the East Bay of, of, no. hey, hurry up. What was it? What were they, what are the, what are the Hawks playing? Yeah, they, 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 they PSL. Professional oh, soccer yeah. league or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, APSL. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and they did indoor soccer. Yeah. Which. Yeah. No, it, yeah. We, but, yeah, yeah. you know, if, if. If we were playing at the Blackhawks anywhere, we're playing against Pumas from Mexico, you know, we could sell 35,000 tickets and sell out Spartan Stadium in, in San Jose. But, you know, the typical game was not well attended, um, although, again, dependent on, on the amount of money and effort we put into promoting it. But the, the idea is, is to really grow the game and, and help, you know, help stimulate that interest and, and increase the, the, the pool, we, we did do surveys as part of our, as part of our feasibility work and, and early bid stuff. And, and it shows that the American public is really, really interested in, in coming to both a men and a women's rugby world cup. Um, a lot of people don't know much about the game, but they, they do know that if it's the world cup, they'd be very interested in, in buying tickets and going, um, and that, that really obviously stimulates and, and gives us the sense that the you know, we're, we're onto something quite good and having spoken to Alan Rothenberg several times who ran the 94 world cup. Yeah. He, he, yeah, he said a number of people who thought he was crazy going to the big stadiums, uh, definitely outnumbered by, by nine to one, <laughs> uh, t- telling you he was crazy. Yeah. Uh, and in the end, um, you know, he was, and he did it again in 99 with the women's. So, so the reality is, is I think. If there's some parallels there that we can take advantage of. Do we expand the World Cup? Well, the Men's World Cup is traditionally 20. Does that expand to 24 uh, teams? Well, yeah, you know, that that's a political and a, a world rugby comment. I think what what we have done, and we're quite open about that, is is we we have provided two two options of a 24-20, and I think we're one of the few unions that have told World Rugby that we think it'd be more beneficial for us commercially. And financially, because the instinct is, well, four teams is more expensive. But the reality is, is that uh, World Rugby has increased the number of rest days more countries. between um, 
between games from four to five days. A 2014 tournament actually gives you more games, so 52 games instead of 48, uh, and it's shorter than uh, than a 20-team tournament, so it's actually less expensive. And, and, and Makes you get equal pools and plus you have three other countries, yeah, games and et cetera. But you know, there's there's a risk on on the development side of of who those extra four teams may be, which I can understand. Yes, but if we're saying three million supporters for a World Cup, successful World Cup in '31, of which at least two thirds probably have to be domestic. Yeah, I, I'm fair I, statement. My, um, our data feels roughly speaking. Whatever the number is today, I think the the foreign visitor number will increase um, more than it has before, just simply okay. based on the accessibility of our cities. Totally, and yeah, it's and you can get it from southern hemisphere, yeah. northern hemisphere, Asia. They can we can all come in, but if four hundred thousand is kind of what it's been at best, you know, we got to almost triple that, and or we have to grow our domestic fan base, audience base to over two million. Who'd want to support that? And what gives me great hope, not only in kind of the leadership that's in place to kind of move forward with this, what you guys are doing, yep. but the experiences we're having in Major League Rugby, yep. uh, you know, particularly at the Free Jacks matches, yep. it's highly rugby centric to start. And now a lot of people I run into, you know, we're in our VIP chalet just this last weekend and people are stopping me. And, you know, I, I understand you're one of the co owners and CEOs. This is the best sporting event I've ever yep. been to. This is fantastic. You know, one of our, our, our colleagues, our marketing director, his um, land uh, lady lives upstairs from him, surprised him. She's an 83-year-old woman in, in Southie, took the subway down, the red line down to the match, didn't tell him, showed up, watched the game. At the end of the game, you know, she went and found him and said, this is, again, the greatest sporting event I've ever been to. And this is somebody who's been a lifelong Patriots, Red Sox, Celtics, uh, Bruins fan. And uh, yeah. So it's hit, it's hitting every demographic, and I think those are I know even though they're anecdotal, give me great hope and what can we can exactly. accomplish in the next okay. time. Yeah, I go uh, to our our games here uh, to to Kimball's Kimball's events in uh, Oak Lake, and I I, I, again, I think it's a great product, and, and I think if you if you wrap yourselves in, in the World Cup flag a little bit, uh, you know that'll be a great catalyst for growing growing it and. Uh, and also, on the flip side, I, I think the, I think for world rugby, you know that that, the fact that the our audiences are are what they are and sophisticated and consuming, um, you know, people will not only learn rugby but also some of the great players in the world, which I think is a, a real, you know, proof proof is that you know ultimately people follow the players as much as the sport. So people know Ronaldo and Messi and Pelé and Maradona more than uh, the clubs they play for to a certain extent. But the reality is, is a World Cup brings them up to another level of visibility globally. Completely. And, I, and that's what rugby's never done a great job of. I mean, we've always prided ourselves on team first and on a commercial basis, we haven't done a great job selling the heroes with inside that team environment. Uh, sure. And I think we can do both. I think we can not lose the fabric and the values of team first mentality, but still make sure that people understand who the heroes are on the field uh, doing that great work. And that's an area that we haven't done a great job, even as, I mean, rugby's only been professional for what, 20 plus years. Uh, but still, you know, there's very few 
international heroes. You'd say Joan Aloma was one of the few um, that was able to kind of break out of that. But that's what we need to learn how to do, which begets the question is, how does Major League Rugby help? Um, how important has that been to the bidding process? And how important will Major League Rugby's work be, you know, in the coming decade for these World Cups? Uh, I, well, I think that, you know, as as we, I'm on record to say, I think one of the advantages of of, of rugby over soccer in 94, although all, all all respect to the APSL at the time, uh, which was hanging by a thread <laughs> by the time I left to go work on the World Cup. But um, I think a big advantage is that MLR is already established and, and functioning and, and you know, doing well and growing uh, from what I understand and I can see. Um, but, yeah. but I think you know that there's that piece and then obviously the development of the game piece so the, the assumption is that MLR and the franchises like yourselves will be a key component to to carrying the message again with world rugby helping into the communities and helping grow the game as most of you already are so i think it's it, both sides help each other out in, in that regard but i think also financially you know, adding to the bucket of money that World Rugby or USA Rugby will, will develop for that, I think that only makes it better. And I think I have to, you know, you know, make everybody aware that MLR and and an owner or, or several owners um, were the reason where we are where we are, which is they funded the feasibility phase, uh, and in particular, you know, one is is funded the the bid phase in, in a lot of ways and, and been a key, key player in all of this. So I think the fact that, you know, he's tasted the professional rugby scene and, and is putting more into it, uh, only shows that this is you know, visionaries like, like Ryan, and I think have really been a key part of, of our success and, and is a, a good example of how MLR can continue to help. Yeah, very well said. So let's say let's say when the the well, vote is on the twelfth, eleventh. What's the when's the vote? Twelfth. And is it just a yay or nay, or would it is there a potential yay or nay? Option? As far as I know. Okay. Let's 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 assume we get the yay. We're optimistic, folks. What then happens? Well, what, what then happens? <clears throat> um, well, it's already happening. Uh, I have to say, I, I think, and, and not to say, whatever's happening now will just go faster and have more focus. So the more we can do now is usually easier because we're not distracted by a lot of other you know, people uh, coming and getting involved. But, but the, the reality is, is, is there's a lot of effort. And I think on the USA rugby side to, to be in, to make people aware of what, what might be coming on the development side, um, working with, you know, MLR and, and the communities of, of USA rugby for sure. Uh, and, and on the operational side, um, or the structural side, there's ongoing work with world rugby who, who will, will be very hands-on and, and hosting and, and basically leading the, the hosting process or leading the organization that will be hosting this, which is the, the local organizing committee. Um, but, but, uh, the, the reality is, is we, we'll have to enact and, and form a, an entity and, and, uh, uh, establish an entity which equates to the local organizing committee. World Rugby will dive into the communities and begin very quickly to, to stimulate 
respective areas and, and sports, uh, the sport in, in the, in the, in the United States. Uh, and then obviously there, there's going to be a, a commercial side to it that will also be established led by world rugby and, and some of us locally perhaps. But, but the reality is, is, is it, you know, it's out all hands on deck, probably not a lot of hands. It'll stay small for a while, at least a small through 23, which is normal, um, for France 23. But, um, you know, the, the idea is to really start building and have everything in place and hopefully mobilized, uh, within the end of 2022 and really started moving rapidly in 23. Yeah. And then a lot of our stadiums, if I understand correctly, that have been a part of the city bids like ours here in, in New England, they're going to adjust anyway yeah. for the FIFA world cup in some cases. So they would have the width length necessary for an international exactly. rugby test. We are counting on that. that just for sure. I mean, there's stadiums like, like Boston's or Seattle's and, Phoenix and others that, or Houston that, that don't require a lot of work. It, it's really a question of, of yards, uh, to a certain extent, but you know, most are, are planning yeah. to do if they are chosen for FIFA world cup, which again, helps us out a lot for sure. And then traditionally the rugby world cup men's, uh, has, and, and the women's at some, some stage too, but that, that has, has been kind of that September, October yeah. window frame. Is there thought that that will be drowned out by just the massiveness of American football? Is there a bump in that window? Is there leveraging against those? Like, how does that? Well, does that I, I think it, it's too. There, there's the schedule wide. The reality that we're prepared to do it um, in September, October uh, for for right or wrong. We feel and we we've made our our thoughts clear uh, to World Rugby is we feel that there's. There's an opportunity to consider other other windows uh, and other, especially prior to the fall and end of summer kind of stuff. But again, our our, our mission is is to do it correctly at, at, during the window. But I think our, our also point isn't necessarily to solve you know, or to maximize the benefits of the United States. We think it could be something that could be a long term. Uh, consideration for for rugby, but again, we don't want to, you know, hit above our weight here. The we're do what we got to do, but having understood international calendars from my time as as overseeing that on the FIFA side, you know, I I think there's a, a broader topic besides the World Cup dates. It's the international exactly, which again, yeah, I'm not going to get in the yeah. middle of that one, yeah. just because I'm I'm definitely not the right guy and definitely not smart enough to figure that one out either. It, 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 it's such an exciting thing if it happens and it's just, that it really changes. It's a, it's a, it's a game changer, but the reality is there's a lot of work to be done is, is, is effectively what we're saying. Um, what are the biggest challenges ahead if, and when we get this thumbs up? Uh, well, I think the, the, the biggest challenge is, and, and something that's really not, uh, can't really put your finger on it, but. I think conceptually the biggest challenge is for people to, or to use the momentum that we've gained, uh, with, with conversations like this and others, and that we don't go silent for, for a period of time, uh, and, and then try to bring it back, which, which again, it's, it's not easy to do that. And when you're on a roll, yeah. I, I think the, the challenge will be to, to be organized enough, uh, and, and have everybody, you know, stay in their lane, uh, a little bit of, uh, your, your. American football coach in, in the Boston area, 
everybody's got a job to do and, and let's do it and uh, stay focused on the task and, and hopefully be organized enough and, and led led the right way so that we 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 all feel like we're making progress and don't take a step backwards um, and and try to re resurrect it in a couple of years. So I, I I think you know we need the time we need and there, no nobody has told me you know ever in this event business so we wish we wouldn't have done so much so early <laughs> and uh, I, I think the point is is we really yeah. got to try to make progress from the beginning and. Um, and, and, and there's a lot more work in the United States than I think world rugby or anybody from a, a rugby country can imagine. So I think we really got to take advantage of it as much as you can, but the upside is huge too. And I think that'll shock everybody as well. This is a conversation we have with our staff is, are we prepared in a week if they say yes, to make sure that we're getting the word out, you know, that our community impact group has got letters teed up to every local athletic high school athletic director that you know 14 year old you know uh girls yeah. today are going to be in that 33 world cup and you know 16 15 and 16 year old um boys are going to be in that 31 world cup and here's an awesome opportunity um and just making sure that we are we're ready to yeah. go I, and, uh, and and all awesome that made, i mean on the flip side it's it's not like the world's going to change <laughs> I mean, the, the world changes but if everybody exactly. back and goes, oh, we have the World Cup, everything, you just got to wait. The reality is, is, as anybody, and Don Gartner will say, the commissioner of MLS will say, you know, he's had to work hard every day for over 20 years uh, as the commissioner of MLS to get it to where they are. And, and it's not like, you know, the 94 World Cup was the, was the solution. It was the, it was a catalyst. And, and even the 26th World Cup, you know, it, it's helped. But, you know, I don't think he goes to, to the office and, and, and doesn't do anything just waiting for the World Cup. I mean, the reality is, is they got to be positioning themselves correctly and, and keep pushing uh, every day. Yeah, it's, a, it's very pertinent. We just had our get together with our executive committee for the Free Jacks for Thunderco, our board. And it was, it was, that was the exact conversation. Whether World Cup happens or not, are we really still excited about our business? Yes. And what does that look like? One model, what does the other model look like? And both are really exciting. Um, and just being making sure that we're prepared to continue to push forward. Um, and that that grind for the next 10 years, one fan at a time, is what we're going to need to get, you know, if we're talking the numbers of a, of a World Cup successfully, at least, you know, at least 2 million people who want to buy tickets and be a part of the experience, um, you know, domestically. So... Uh, we certainly have our work uh, cut out yeah. for us, but it's so yeah. super exciting. Jim, some rapid fire questions for you. Do you have a most memorable World Cup moment? Uh, oh, yeah. Moment? Well, on, on the, the World Cup moment, uh, you, you mentioned it earlier. Um, I wouldn't say the most memorable. I mean, obviously, the, the Stanford Stadium hosted Brazil versus the United States on the 4th of July of 1994, and obviously that was uh, memorable. Uh, we... we we almost won too, um, and uh, we were down. They were down a man, and they still won. Um, but I, I think after that before or after the game, yeah, I'm at that one. But uh, I think the, yeah. the World Cup yeah. final in in Germany was overall a, a, an amazing experience, positive. But um, you know the the headbutt that you referred to. Um, somebody walked up to me and said, "Well, does." Does Zinedine Zidane go out and 
hoist the trophy if France wins. And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> and, uh, so I went up and asked, uh, <laughs> the president of FIFA and the general secretary of FIFA, uh, and they both said, not my problem. It's your problem. And, um, and, and <laughs> I, I made the decision that he wasn't going to leave the, the locker room. Nobody said anything otherwise to me, uh, but fortunate enough. Uh, and I think the quality of the game, um, if fortunate enough, uh, Italy won, so I didn't have to deal with it, but, uh, and that's one and at the Olympics. Yeah. There was a good decision. day in the athletics at the Olympics when Kathy Freeman ran, and Michael Johnson ran, and it was, I think the highlight of, uh, of my Olympic time was, was that, I mean, there's a lot of memory. Oh, that was in Sydney. Was that Atlanta? Sydney, was that Atlanta? Atlanta. I, I ran Olympic stadiums. Okay. The 20, but the highlight yeah. was the 10,000 meter, um, which was, I think the last event of the day, if I remember correctly. Um, and they, uh, uh, Gabriel Silesi won, won the race leaning at the tape after running sprinting, looking like for 10,000 meters. The Kathy Freeman finishes oh, for Australia. That's the, probably the loudest I've ever felt a stadium get is, uh, the, the pressure that the country felt and yeah. put on her and she delivered was, was really special. How good of a time was that for Australia? Yeah. You know, that not only the Olympics 2000 yeah. and then the exactly. men's rugby world cup in 2003. Lions tour, I think, in between, like it was yeah. great, great countries, very good time that country sport and sure. a different level for sure. Yeah, okay. 20 million yeah. people that do very well. Yeah, um, last question if you're running the free jacks today, you're in my shoes, what would you be focusing on? Uh, you know what? I, I, th I think I don't know. I mean, I, I think you guys are doing a great job. I think MLR is doing a great job. I, I think the only thing I would say is, is you know act like it's a, a short-term project, but realize that it's a long-term project and don't, don't react to either Very well said. too much. I mean, yeah, you work like you're running a, a, a startup, uh, which you are, uh, you're, you're running a family business to a certain extent and the family's just gotta get bigger and bigger. But I, I, I think, uh, you know, that would be my, my approach, which is easier said than done. Yeah, is that interesting? You know, we had our uh, all hands staff meeting yesterday, and that was the exact conversation: was, look how much we're growing, but we're not mm -hmm. growing what we th how fast we thought we would for this year. So, what you know what I mean? Just reminding ourselves that um, celebrate the victories, but understand it's a, it's a long yeah, way to go. Still, you don't even know what for sure where you're going. I mean, that's the key: is is are you going to have you know twenty thousand people, uh, and that's the end, or is it going to be another NFL? And or NBA or whatever. Yeah, again, I think that's the that's the point. Is is and and you, you're you're working with people, and you're going to remember for the rest of your life because of the work, not not necessarily. Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's a great experience. Very well said, Jim. It's great to have you. If are you on social media or how to? I, I'm not a social media. I I have a LinkedIn, LinkedIn account, um, which is where I I usually get bombarded. Um, but uh, welcome anything uh, from people, but. But, um, you know, I, I'm not really out there, uh, Twittering or, or Snapchatting or anything like that. But my, my email address is fairly, fairly used lately, which is, uh, people can guess that one. So, <laughs> okay. You want to let them guess? Good. I'm glad based on it's good option, I'm going to say that Jim Brown, the second most famous Jim Brown.com. There you go. <laughs>
<laughs> the, the most famous, according to mom. No, the, the, the most famous guy. So he had a lot more uh, uh, rushing yards than I did. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, we appreciate everything you're doing and best of luck in the coming days and hours. Uh, it's certainly a very exciting time and we appreciate your leadership and I uh, look forward to buying you a beer once it on that. goes through. For sure. Okay, great. Everyone, thanks for listening to the latest episode of Full Contact CEO with Jim Brown. Stay tuned for a slate of exciting guests in the world of sports, business, and of course, rugby. Don't forget to subscribe, to comment, and give us a follow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the latest. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks.